how would you describe the colour blue to a blind person who's never seen in their whole life? If you found a, um, a tribe in the Amazon that had never seen reality in terms of Western reality or humanity, how would you convince them that a Mars bar is worth eating when they think it's just a brown stick? The reason why I'm asking these questions is this is the quandary I have every Sunday when I preach. Uh, I just went to the movies yesterday afternoon with one of my boys and saw the third Hobbit movie. There's this really interesting uh, section in the third Hobbit movie, actually it's in the second one as well, uh, where there's this kind of this, uh, this fortress and there's a dragon in there called Smaug. Did I say it wrong? Oh, see, I was, I was concerned I was going to get it wrong, so... Jordan Fleming, PA. <laughs> and this fortress is absolutely filled with gold and treasure. But it, it's a unique kind of gold and treasure because it's a gold and treasure that actually takes possession or control of the people that love it, basically. And the dragon's in there protecting it. And what you actually have uh, in the movie, and this comes out most strongly in the first half of the uh, third version of The Hobbit yesterday, is you have the king of the dwarves, Thorin, goes in there and the dragon gets killed by someone else and so it's not protected anymore and Thorin, this wonderful, respectable dwarf, sounds weird, doesn't it, that people would give their lives for, actually gets taken over by the curse of this treasure and he becomes something completely different. And the first half of the movie yesterday was uh, one of the uh, parts of the narrative that was going on is there was this... There were the dwarves around him, I think it was only like 11 of them, trying to help Thorin see that he'd become something completely not him. And you know what? He couldn't see it. Every time someone came up and spoke to him, he couldn't see it. And so what you kind of had is you had people who could see going to someone who couldn't see and trying to help him see, but he couldn't, he couldn't get there. He couldn't actually see and in a sense, part of the job of uh, someone who preaches on a Sunday morning at a church is to help people to see something that they don't see. Well, how do you help someone see something they don't see? That's really what my question was right at the start. And in, in one sense, it's an impossible job because I can't actually help you to see things that you need to see. The really interesting thing is that we live in a culture that's absolutely bombarding you with things that they think that you need to see. They're bombarding you with things that they think that you need to hunger after and you need to have. Uh, in June last year, I was actually in Times Square in uh, New York. And uh, in terms of square meterage, it would have to be, this is a photo I took from the viewing platform there, it would have to be some of the most intense marketing per square metre around in, in the whole world. I loved it. I mean, I really felt like it was a centre of capitalism, really, New York is. I mean, they've got the biggest... We went to uh, Madison Square Garden and there's a Macy's, which is kind of like halfway between Myra and David Jones. There's a Macy's across the road and they say, this is the biggest Macy's store in the world. And, uh, and it's big. We went in there because we want a free Wi-Fi. <laughs> but do you know what marketing's about mostly? Marketing is about creating a hunger and suggesting how you can actually have that satisfied. They create an image for you to see and draw you toward it. This is the nature of marketing and advertising. Um, 
in a sense, if you look in the Bible at Genesis chapter 3, you've got your first piece of marketing, haven't you, with the, with the devil. If you actually eat this fruit, you'll be like God. It creates a hunger in them and they go after that for satisfaction. There's a study in the States that suggests that uh, each human in the, in the West, or in America it must have been, I think, uh, sees an average of about 9,000 marketing images a day. Clive Hamilton, an Australian guy, wrote a book called Affluenza that came out a number of years ago and he said this, he said, when we consider the amount of time children spend watching television, being exposed to marketing messages and the allure of those messages promising instant gratification, it is no surprise that parents, teachers and churches cannot compete. So you know what? You actually come to church this morning hungry and thirsty for something. You just do. You've come to church... Over the last week, you've been hungry and thirsty and you've come to church today with a record over the last seven days of the things that you've gone to to be satisfied. John Piper makes this comment. He says, What we hunger for most, we worship. When God is the supreme hunger of our hearts, he will be supreme in everything. You see, every person wakes up every day with hunger, but human beings have an amazing propensity to self-medicate. With food, or just about anything. And I want to ask you this morning, my question for you this morning is, when you hunger, when you feel a need, and you want to get that need filled, do you go to Jesus to get that filled, or do you self-medicate? You see, in John 7, verse 37, it says this, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out. If you just pardon me, because I'm going to do it how he would have done it. If anyone thirsts! Let him come to me and drink. And he would say that to you today. And there's actually a thirst that you have that's not going to be satisfied by anything other than him. Now you can stick stuff in there. You can drink stuff. And here's the bottom line. We all have this week, right? We've all had moments this week where we've grabbed stuff and we've kind of shoved it in there. But it's probably been more like you know, it's a bit like a thirsty person stuck in a raft in the middle of the ocean and if they start drinking salt water, what happens to them? They go crazy. They go mad. And in some ways, that actually happens to us. When we grab something that doesn't actually satisfy our thirst and we shove it in there, it just makes us mad, a bit like Thorin in uh, The Third Hobbit. It's really interesting. When you read... Jeremiah 22, verse 11 to 13, it makes this really interesting statement about where people go to get their thirst satisfied. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? Jeremiah's going, how dumb is this? They've changed their god, but they've put something in there that's not a god. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Check out the uh, phrase just at the end of the first half of it. Be appalled, O heavens. You see, the shocking thing in the spiritual realm is that humans decide sometimes they're going to get Jesus, they're going to go to Jesus for satisfaction, and sometimes they don't. And sometimes people just decide, no, I'll, I'll be right. I'll be okay. And the biggest thing, I think, going against churches, going against Christians, going against me, is that we get a little bit of Jesus and we go, that'll do. 
That's enough. It's, it's met enough of my needs and I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that. I don't, you don't want to be too much of a fundamentalist. You know, there's a real kind of vibe in our culture that the, against fundamentalism. But when you're following Jesus, fundamentalism in terms of going the hardest that you possibly can at Jesus is going to be the best thing for culture and society, isn't it? It just is. So you want to see a horror scene? Imagine this. When I choose a thousand times a day to not connect with God, not to talk to him, not to include him in my decisions, but to rely on my own wisdom, the heavens are shocked. When I self-medicate, when I feel pain and I find ways to alleviate the pain that have got nothing to do with Jesus, the heavens are appalled and shocked. And I think that part of the reason why the heavens are appalled and shocked is because Jesus and God is just so magnificent. It's just kind of like, really? What are you doing again? Can you just, you know, it's one of those things. You ever had that conversation with someone where they're doing something? You're going, like, seriously? Are you just, do you just want to think about that? Because that just sounds really, really dumb. And there's someone I know that I'm working with at the moment and he's saying stuff to me and I'm just going, really? I mean, the guy is just completely blind, almost entirely blind to a particular area. There's, there's some stuff going on and he's, he's actually hurting his wife quite a lot um, and he's got no idea why. Now, I'm sitting there and seriously, it's taken me about 10 minutes to work out why. But he doesn't see it. Ravi Zacharias made this comment. He said, uh, what used to happen with humanity is people used to adapt ourselves to suit reality. Now we use technology to adapt reality to ourselves. So we've got virtual reality. We've got home theatres, computer games. And the interesting thing out of all of this is it's not... Some of you might go, yeah, it's the devil, right? It's not really the devil that's getting this done. Have a look at this from Luke 14. This is what Jesus says. But they all alike began to make excuses. So they got invited to a feast. They go, nah, sorry, can't come. Why? I bought a field. I bought a block of land and I've got to go and have a look. That's not, it's like some of you are going, okay, so it's demonic to buy land. No, I'm not saying that. Do you get the point? They're just distracted. Distracted. Distracted from the preciousness of Jesus. Please have me excused. And another said... I've bought five yoke of oxen. I just bought a new car. And I want to go and have a look at it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. You see, the problem for us is not that there's a whole bunch of big sins that are going to get in the way. Mostly what it is, is it's God's gifts that get in the way of us getting to God. Isn't that right? Is it God's really generous to us? Is really good to us. It gives you nice houses, nice cars, a full pantry maybe. And it gets in the way. It's the everyday little decision. See, it's not the X-rated video that's going to take you down, but it's the meat and potatoes and coffee and reading and decorating and travelling and investing and TV watching and internet surfing and shopping and exercising and collecting and talking that's going to do it. True? And I'm not saying those things are bad. But they become bad when those are the things that we go to and we connect with those things and we get distracted by God's gifts and we get distracted away from him. It's a beautiful quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak 
We're half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we're far too easily pleased. That's my task today. I'm standing up here today and I want you to know there's a holiday at the sea that you don't know anything about. You don't know anything about it. You see, I hesitate to say this because um, there used to be some people in the project and we, we really liked them, but they kept count of how many times we talked about porn in the project. And I'm just going to talk about it for a minute. So I'll just if you tally it now, do you know if you go to a porn addict and you ask a porn addict what the height of love is, they're probably going to tell you that what they're doing is the height of love. They can't imagine that there's anything else that's even better than that. But anyone who's been married enough, long enough, who knows that when you love someone for who they are and not for what they look like, will know that there's a level of love that goes way higher than just the physical gratification that comes through porn. But here's the trick. You try telling a porn addict that. <laughs> Get my point? Because they don't think it exists. And this is part of the problem what Lewis is saying here is he's just going, part of the problem is that the person, the kid in the, in the mud puddle doesn't actually believe that there is a beach. And that's kind of part of my task on Sunday mornings is to stand up and say, hey, listen, there's a beach and it's a really good one. And you want to get there and you want to do whatever you can to get there because it's so good. And part of the bind is, oh, I don't even know how good the beach is. And you're going, well, what are you doing talking to us this morning? Because that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And that's what God asked me to do. All right? So I, I know a little bit about what the beach is like. And to be honest, this last week has been pretty ordinary. And I have been fooling around with dumb stuff in my head and in my heart this week. And I don't really have a good sense of what the beach is like at the moment. But... The Bible says to preach the word in season and out of season. All right? So I'm going to stand up and proclaim it anyway. So today, you know what we're going to look at? We're actually back into Mark. That was my introduction. I want to look at this today. I want to look at fasting and dysfunctional appetites. We live in the land of the long white smorgasbord, don't we? I mean, food's a big deal. Uh, you get over in America, everyone said to me, a lot of people said to me before I left, they go, food is so cheap over there, all right? And you go to Taco Bell and it's so cheap because you pay all the extra money in cardiac fees at the hospital, <laughs> all right? That cheese whiz stuff, has anyone had cheese whiz? It's disgusting. I can't even know what that is, where they just squeezed a bit of cholesterol out of someone's veins or something. <laughs> put it in a bottle. Yeah, put that on there. You'll feel a lot better for it. But we do, don't we? We live in a place, we live in a, in a world where there's an abundance of food. We uh, went down to the Brisbane Heat game in the Big Bash uh, a couple of weeks ago and I noticed on a, um, an electronic billboard um, the barley and rye down there advertising uh, itself as comfort food and bar. You see, food in our culture has become more than just food, hasn't it? It's an experience. And there's a sense, which I want to suggest to you today, that food... And the way that you handle food is going to be connected to your other appetites that you have and the dysfunctionality of your other appetites. You know why? Because if you can get food under control, 
in a sense even, by the time we get to this, if you can have periods of time where you can go without food, you know at the end of that that you can go without all the other things that you get tricked into thinking you need. I know someone who um, has got a family, some young children, and you know what they do every time or most times that we observe when their children are upset, when their children hurt themselves, when they're... Uh, when their children are upset or, or struggling relationally, most of the time what they do, they give them food. Now, you know what that does? That teaches the kids that what you do when you're sad is you go and you get food. That's what you do. You see, food's not just food anymore, is it? Food's entertainment, especially if you've got boys. It's like, ah, oh, I've got nothing to do. What's in the fridge? <laughs> That's kind of the deal. You see, food makes you feel better. And there's a lot of talk now about comfort food. And a lot of talk about comfort eating. Comfort eating refers to the use of food in a therapeutic way, so people using foods to reduce their stress levels or to make them feel better. That's, that's what people do with comfort eating. Now, in 2011, there was a whole Catalyst program on the ABC about comfort eating. And I thought I'd show you an excerpt out of it. Here we go. tastes quite like comfort food. That decadent, indulgent, and let's face it, delicious way we sometimes deal with the stress of everyday life. Comfort eating refers to the use of foods in a therapeutic way. So people using foods to reduce their stress levels or to make them feel better. Sucking myself with anything that will make me larger will make me feel a lot better, yeah. Chocolate croissants. <laughs> chocolate. Definitely dark chocolate. Chocolate, chocolates and chips. Cheese. <laughs> Bananas. I'm down to one slice a day <laughs> instead of a whole chunk. <laughs> Seriously. Comfort food has many elements and the basic bottom line is high in fat and high in sugar. But is all that sugar and fat really doing you any good? And is there a substitute for comfort food? A lot of studies suggest that food that's high in fat and sugar have a stress-reducing effect. And that's in the acute phase, in the short term, but also in the longer term. So if you expose an animal, say, to a stress, and you provide fat and sugar, the animal feels less stressed. Exactly how comfort food does that isn't certain, but the evidence suggests it involves chemicals in the brain, like serotonin and dopamine, that influence our moods and our sense of reward similar to the way that drugs of addiction also induce a sense of pleasure. So comfort food helps us relieve the stresses of daily living, but new research suggests that it may also have a role to play in helping us deal with the consequences of long-term mental trauma. Using rats, Professor Margaret Morris showed that the consumption of comfort foods can reverse the long-term effects that early life trauma has on the hippocampus, an important stress-regulating region of the brain. The hippocampus can undergo cell loss and effectively shrink when a person is subjected to abuse, neglect or abject poverty. Early life trauma induces changes in the hippocampus and of course because early life trauma increases one's risk at least of things like depression, epilepsy, possibly psychosis, it's important that we understand how better to intervene and that's really where our work's coming from. Needless to say, the benefits to the hippocampus did come at a cost. Our rats were obese. They had increased fat, they were glucose intolerant, they were pre-diabetic so we don't want to promote this as a, as a panacea for treating stress. It's obviously unhealthy to have a diet entirely of comfort food. So what's the alternative? 
Yes, you guessed it. Moderate, regular exercise. We found that high-fat diet or exercise had the same mood-elevating effects. So one doesn't have to be extreme here. You could combine a little bit of comfort food and regular healthy exercise is going to be beneficial to people. So we don't have to completely cut out the chocolate biscuits? No, I think the occasional chocolate biscuit is really important and I think people need to have that release. It's, it's a pleasurable experience. Interesting, huh? Now, I could make a whole bunch of comments about it, but the only comment I'm going to make is really this at this point in time is um, you can just see the... F Comfort food's not just about food. It's about what food actually does. So I want to read Mark 2, verse 18 to 22. So if you've got a Bible, you can have a look at it there uh, or you can have a look up on the screen. I'm going to read and make a few comments as we go. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, not eating. He's teeing it up. Um, and people came and said to him, to Jesus... Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? They should be doing what the other guys are doing, if they're good guys. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. There's two illustrations Jesus is giving there and I'm going to go to the second one first. The second one is really, you can't kind of take um, something uh, old, um, and put something new with it. That's, that's basically the big idea behind the second illustration. And I think what Jesus is actually doing here is he's saying, look, the way that you're actually going to fast post me is different to the way that people have done it in the past. Okay? I think that's what he's saying with the second half. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. I'm happy to talk with you later about it if you want to talk about it. But I think that's the guts of what he's saying. You just can't do it the same way. So in the Old Testament, when people would fast, they'd be bummed out about their sin. They'd be pleading for mercy. It'd be like uh, David when he, uh, he lost his uh, son that was conceived uh, by adultery uh, after his son died. Um, he fasted and he prayed. Um, it, it, just, it, it has a kind of a pleading kind of uh, abasement kind of sense to it. I think Jesus is saying here that it's different post him. The fasting is going to be different. Well, the question is, hopefully in your mind, how is it going to be different? Well, let's look at his other analogy and let me set it up for you. Weddings. I remember uh, <coughs> a fellow who I worked with at the school here. Uh, he had both he and a couple of members of his family, like one of his daughters, I think, they were so kind of phlegmatic and laid back that they didn't kind of notice their birthdays as they had them. And it was just kind of over before they really started to enjoy it. So they instituted this family thing. They said, OK, birthday celebrations in our family go for a whole week. All right. <laughs> Otherwise, there's these members of the families that just they'd only just start getting in the swing of it and it was over. Well, back in the, in the day, uh, in Jesus's day, wedding celebrations went for a week. That's what happened. You partied on for a whole week. So you imagine you go to the wedding ceremony, for example. Let's, uh, let's just say, for example, the bride and the groom they give their, make their vows to one another. Then you go to the party and it's meant to go for a whole week. It would look really, really dumb if you went to that party and you didn't eat, wouldn't it? 
That's what you do when you go to a wedding. I think it's probably been since time immemorial that um, when you go to a wedding party, you eat. All right? And Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding party because they ran out of booze, or wine, I should say. So you party and you eat. Now, can you imagine? I mean, the first thing is you're not going to go there and not eat. But I'll tell you what, if you went there and the bridegroom left halfway through the week, you're probably not celebrating anymore at that point. True? Now, you're not bummed out about it necessarily, maybe. I don't know. But you're not going to celebrate. It's not like, woohoo, how good is this wedding celebration? The people are going, hey, champ, like the, uh, they've got, they're gone. He's, we don't know where he is. He left three days ago. And there's a sense, I think, that what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, look, I'm the bridegroom. And there's a sense in which Jesus coming down onto earth, he's actually come. I mean, the Bible's quite clear about the fact that Jesus is the bridegroom and his bride is actually the church. And so there's a sense in which Jesus has come down on the earth. He's kind of, I mean, the way that I put it, it's, it's a little bit messy with this analogy, but I kind of put it like this. He's, he's gone to the marriage ceremony and then he's disappeared before the celebration or he's disappeared halfway through the celebration. And you know what? The people who are at the celebration, you know what's, what's going on for them? They're just really bummed out. Not about themselves and about their own sin. What do you reckon they're bummed out? Because what? Because he's gone. You get the point? And so I think what Jesus is saying here is it's like, I'm going to come down and I'm going to start something really special, but then I'm going to disappear. And when I disappear, people are just going to want more of me. And that's why they're going to go without food. They're going to go without food because they miss me. And they want to get as much of me as they possibly can. Now, what Jesus says there, you can see the italicized bit on the screen there. It says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And listen to this. And then they will fast in that day. So we don't have to have a show of hands, but... And this is not, you know, you don't get brandy points for this, but I'm just wondering how many of you have fasted? How many of you actually have fasted food or something else? Matthew 6, verse 16, Jesus says this. He says, and when you fast. Jesus expects that what actually is going to happen after he's gone, even after he's gone, is that people are going to fast. He says this, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. Hypocrite was actually an actor originally, and they'd wear a mask. And the longer the play went on, the more you get to know who the person was until the mask came off at the end. So what you had there is you had these religious people wearing masks and saying, oh, I'm presenting themselves in a particular way, and that's why they were a hypocrite. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may, may be seen by others. Imagine this. You've got guys there, and they're, they're going without food, and they're making sure everyone knows about it. Do you know someone like that? They have some kind of hardship or something that they're going without, or they've been hurt by something, and they make sure that everyone knows about the trouble that they're in. Well, Jesus says, if you fast like that, he says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. That's it. But when you fast, Jesus says, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will, does anyone know the rest of this sentence? He'll do what? He'll reward you. Now, those of you who are here when we went through Hebrews, Anyone who comes to God must first believe that he exists and that he is, he is a... 
What does that verse say? Hebrews 11 verse 2. Anyone know it? He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So Jesus is saying here, listen, make it look like you're not fasting and just do it between you and I and I'm just going to reward you. You see, the Old Testament way of fasting was brokenheartedness over sin. There was danger. There was a deeply longed for blessing. It was really something that you did when things were not going the way that you wanted them to. In the New Testament, post-Jesus, there's a sense now that fasting is about the fact that Jesus has come, God's kingdom has come, but it's not entirely finished. The bride has a groom, but then the groom's kind of taken away. I'm going to show you a clip from, uh, it's a little bit old now, it's from 2006 on 60 Minutes. It's uh, about a couple, David and Siobhan Conroy. And um, basically in the early 30s, uh, Siobhan was uh, diagnosed with MS. And it got to the point where it got so bad that a husband couldn't look after her. Um, He proposed to her two weeks after finding out that she had MS. In those early days, though they both accepted Siobhan was seriously ill, life was to be lived. MS wasn't going to dominate. Did you ever think twice about getting married after the diagnosis? No. Um, Our plan was always to get married. I think I proposed two weeks after she was diagnosed. Some people would walk away. Mm. Not you? No. Siobhan moved out of her home to here. The weekend when you left your home, David, that must have been a tough, tough day. Uh, hard to stay my life. But much of the time, Siobhan fills her day watching TV. Just by her moving, going out this front door, um, yeah, it was, it was awful. But I tell you what, um, it wasn't as bad as when I left her nursing home room for the first time. Um, I'll never uh, forget the look of fear in her eyes. And it was fear? Mm. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, she was just scared. You know, she was alone. Now that you guys are living apart, how are you coping with that? I hate it. It's very different. Not having someone beside you in bed. David, you were telling me the other day you haven't actually slept in your bed since Siobhan left. No, I haven't. Well, the couch is pretty comfy. It's new. <laughs> well, it was new. Yeah. Yeah. That probably says everything, doesn't it? Probably. Well, I'll speak to you tomorrow, eh? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we'll do. You too.
I think that's a good example of why Jesus is saying you're going to fast. Because he's gone. And you really like him. And you desperately want him to come back. But you're desperate to get as much of him as you possibly can. It's about love separated. You see, Siobhan said she's now scared all the time of everything. And you know when you watch the full interview that he feels every bit of it. She says she hates being apart from him. He says he hasn't slept in their bed since she left, only on the couch. That's a bed fast, isn't it? At one point in time in the story, she told him to leave her so he can have all the things in life that they'd planned to do together. He just walks away and he says later, I never had that conversation. See, that's, that's love. And it's love separated. And I think this is what Jesus is saying in Mark is he's saying you're going to fast because you desperately want me you're going to fast because you love me and I'm going to be taken away from you now is he still here kind of in spirit in the Holy Spirit yes he is but there's a hunger that's going to come that's going to cause you to fast and I want to ask you what do you think actually tests the contents of the heart best is it tragedy or comfort I've had it said to me before in the midst of tragedy where people say the contents of the heart are seen most clearly when there's an urgent tragic situation happening. And I want to suggest to you it's probably not true that tragedies and urgent stuff reveals the contents of people's hearts the most. I think comfort probably does. What do we do in our comfort? You see, when everything's really desperate and we need God's help and we can't survive, we can be very, very earnest But how do we go when everything's going well? And fasting to some extent actually provides an opportunity to afflict yourself, to maintain and to grow your love for Christ. Richard Foster says this, he says, More than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. This is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We cover up what is inside of us with food and other things. Foster's suggesting that fasting is a really, really helpful tool for you to work out what really is controlling you. Because you know what? If you can do without food, you can do without other things as well. Now, those of you who know um, what's written in the books of Moses, remember that it actually says to the Israelite people in in the wilderness, I think it was, it said to them, God brought you out and he let you hunger to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus quotes that. You see, fasting embodies that, that we live on God, not ultimately upon food. You see, fasting keeps us repeatedly asking the questions, do I really hunger for God? Do I miss him? Do I long for him? Or am I becoming content with these gifts? And I wonder for you, how are you planning to deal with that addictive sin? The roller coaster of distance, the guilt of separation mixed with the delight in distance. You see, sometimes extreme measures are needed to cultivate an appropriate hunger. You see, New Testament post Jesus fasting is not a fasting out of emptiness, it's a fasting out of fullness but a desire for more fullness. You don't 
fast to get a taste of something after Jesus has come. You're fast to get more of a taste. You get the difference? It's like you've got a bit of Jesus and you're just going, this is amazing. This is so good. I want to accelerate, amplify, blow this thing up as big as I possibly can. It's a hunger of homesickness for God. You see, either physical appetites are lost because homesickness with God is so intense or homesickness for God is threatened because physical appetites are so intense. So I just want to run through a couple of characteristics of uh, Christian fasting. It's a strategic weapon against sin and hunger for the world. I know that I've had it in my life when I've fasted. When, when I fast, I get to a point, I've, I've gotten to a point in my fasting before as I, I'd kind of go, I, I think, you know, ultimately I do need food, but I get to a point where I just think, I don't think I need food in the same way that I thought I needed food. I actually think what I need most is Jesus. That's what I need. So it's really strategic. And there's something about food. Now, you don't have to fast food, and I'll get to that later on, but there's something about food that tends to be particularly unique in terms of what it does to the appetites. Because food is about survival, right? And that is a dramatic statement in Deuteronomy, I think it is, where it says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It cuts right to the heart of what we think we need to survive. Christian fasting is willing to go without anything to preserve the sweet longings of our homesickness for God. Is that true? I believe a lot of you have got a homesickness and a longing for God. And fasting is kind of saying, I'll go without stuff to get that even stronger and to get even more of Jesus. You see, the issue is anything and everything that is or can be a substitute for God. It could be media, mobiles, technologies, shops. But as I said, food has an incredible effect. I was once in a uh, community group and we did a seven-day media fast. And uh, I know, I, I hope he doesn't mind me talking about it. He's not here today, but I remember talking to Wes Hitchkey. Wes Hitchkey in the church here did a, a media fast as well. And you would not believe the clarity of mind that you get after seven days. So we didn't read any brochures, we didn't play any games, uh, we didn't get on the internet for anything other than it was strictly work. Uh, we did emails that were based on work, none of all the crappy ones that kind of get sent to everyone. No TV, no movies, and just, just clean. Now, the first thing you notice when you do that is you notice how much more time there is in a day. All of a sudden there's 36 hours in a day. But what happens after that? I mean, people often come up to me, especially in the school, and kids go, how do I know what God wants me to do? Well, you just probably just got to shut a whole bunch of things up. And you'll be surprised at the clarity that you'll have at the end of seven days of not consuming any media at all. Now, am I saying media is bad? No, I'm not saying media is bad. But media is bad if it stops you from hearing from God, right? Is that true? You're all getting a bit quiet. Am I beating up on you too much? Is it Okay. But this is good. Like the end point's really good here, right? You go without stuff to get God. See, this is what you see in Philippians 3 verse 8. Listen to this. This is a good fasting attitude. Indeed, Paul says, I count everything as loss. Because of what? 
because I'm a sinner and I need to repent? No, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. See, Paul was a lot better at it, but he was in a similar boat to me. How am I going to get these people to see how good this stuff is? How am I going to get Thorin to see he's in completely the wrong place? How am I going to get you to see how good God is? For his sake, I've suffered the loss of what? Say it. Louder. Say it. All things. See, that's the fasting attitude for a Christian. It's just like, no, Jesus is better. And if I'm getting tricked, I need to take some drastic action. (laughs) I'm going to stop being tricked because I know that he's better than all things. And I'm happy to suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may what? Gain Christ. It's not emptiness. True? It's fullness. It's good. So I'm going to read a couple of scriptures and hopefully it might awaken your hunger. Let's just see how we go. First one. That is beautiful, isn't it? Aren't you long for that? And the other day, I just lay down on the carpet next to, uh, on the spare mattress on the floor next to one of my sons. Geez, we had a good chat. And don't you just don't you just long to actually get down somehow, or maybe God comes down, but you just get on God's level. Like, wouldn't you like to just sit on a park bench and have a chat? Wouldn't you like that? And how good would that be? You know, I mean, the Old Testament prophecy said in the day when Jesus comes back, no man needs to tell his neighbour, know the Lord, but all of them will know me from the least to the greatest. There's not going to be any mediator in between you and God anymore. It's just going to be you and him. That's something to long for. This one. Now, you can read that and you go, yeah, that's when Adam and Eve blew it. In Genesis 3. But I don't just see the blowing it bit in Genesis 3. I see the, oh, he's just going for a walk in the garden. That would be a good walk to go on with him, wouldn't it? Like in the garden of Eden, he's just kicking back. He's just, oh, that's nice. Just having a walk around in the cool of the day. What are Adam and Eve doing? Yeah, of course, they're out there. They're walking with him, aren't they? They're having a good chat. No, they're not. They're in the bushes hiding, okay, because they just blow it. But, you know, that's, what, that's where it's all going, right? It's all going to the point where you're going to be able to go for a stroll with him. Wouldn't that be good? Exodus thirty four twenty nine. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with who? With God. What about this one? Revelation twenty one, three to four. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Oh man, you could just fast over this first one. This is amazing. Behold the dwelling place of God is with who? With us. He's going to make his house with us. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. That is a good thing. It's like you just, yeah, he owns me. Yes. Like, yes. 
you would not want to be owned by anyone else. You get owned by him in a good way, not getting owned by, some, by someone, but if you're owned by... Man, that is, just, that is an absolute certainty that good things are coming your way. And God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So let me highlight something right in the middle that I glossed over. Who's going to wipe away tears? He will. Now, how many angels do you reckon he's got that he could delegate that to? Do you get what I'm saying? Maybe millions, all right? And they're probably pretty good at it. But he's going, no, I'm not going to delegate that one. The job of consoling people and comforting people for trouble that they've been through on the earth is, is going to be mine alone. I'm going to do it. Revelation 19, 9 and 11. He's inviting you to dinner. It's going to be one heck of a dinner. This is like free load on Jesus for eternity. <laughs> Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is faithful. He's called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. Why have I put that in there? Because we all like the fact that the cavalry is coming, right? True? And he knows we live in a world where we need the cavalry to come. I mean, uh, overquoting Lord of the Rings, second Lord of the Rings movie, Battle of Helm's Deep, when all is lost and the guys have gone out thinking they're going to get worked over, who comes over the hill? Gandalf. With an army. And what's he sitting on? Well, he's sitting on a white horse, isn't he? Sounds a lot like this. Okay? See, we live in a world where there's a lot of people think it's cool to beat up on people and kill people. And one day, someone's going to come who's actually going to square everything up and no one's going to be able to beat him. And you know what he's going to do after that? He's going to take you off to dinner. That's what he's going to do at his place. That would be cool. All right? Now, you go to that dinner and, and you know it's going to be the, the finest affair. What was said about the wine at the first miracle of... Uh, that Jesus did? What was said about it? Anyone know? Get the best until last. Well, you know what? The last is going to be the best. That's, it. That's how he does it. Awaken your hunger. See, part of the problem is that God offers this fair to us at the moment. But sometimes we're more happy with an 85 cent loaf of white bread from Coles. Aren't we? I remember reading something from John Piper where he talked about the struggle of preaching and how um, he feels like most Sundays he's got to get up and convince people that have been stuffing themselves with white bread all week that there's a smorgasbord that's beyond their wildest dreams for him. Now that sounds a bit negative because I think a lot of you, you are, you're at the table, you're at the smorgasbord table, but probably if you're anything like me, you're on a swivel chair, all right? And there's a table behind you and it's got an 85 cent loaf of Coles half stale white bread. And you think, whoa, that looks good. You know, and there's like 75 roasted legs of lamb and crackling and everything. And you just go, no, I think I'll, I like that. I really like that stuff. That's good stuff. See, we don't have enough time. I don't have enough time to speak about all of the realities that would inspire your hunger. What about, here's a couple more. 
What about Jesus with the little children on his knee? What about that? Don't you want that? And then you get in to uh, the effect of the presence of God in Acts and what have you got? Well, you've got 3,000 people getting saved in one day. You see blind people seeing in the scriptures, crippled people walking, demons getting cast out. There's prophetic words, there's encouragement. God's coming back. And I wonder whether we're, like, are you really in that stream? Or are you, like, or are you a stoic fatalist? Oh, you know, Kesarasara, whatever will be, will be. You, is anyone excited about this? This is good. It's like I said before, listen, our society kicks back against people who are extremists. If you actually tell someone who's not a Christian, oh, I'm actually doing a bit of fasting... Let's begin. You're doing what? Oh, you're one of the people we need to be worried about. All right? And, and, you know, next thing you know, they're asking to see some spy at ASIO down in Canberra. All right? You've got to track this guy's fasting. But being an extremist about Jesus is exactly what our culture needs. And you know what? It's exactly what you need. So, what types of fast? Well, you know, one type of fast is to get up early in the morning. You can have a sleep fast. And maybe some of you need to do that. What would you do if you get up early in the morning? Well, you might just want to be with Jesus. Now, you're not earning brownie points by doing that. remember hearing this discussion. I can't remember who it was, but these two wise uh, Christian authors were talking about, and I think one of them was Larry Crabb. Um, and um, he asked this other guy why he spends time with God. And the response that the fellow gave was this. He just said, look, I just figure he likes it when I turn up. So turn up. Set your, uh, set your alarm 10 minutes earlier. You know, praying when it's hard is a bit of a fast, isn't it? You know? Because when life's really hard, what do you want to do? Well, you just want to... You like it. My favourite analogy at the moment is out hamstering a wheel. What do you want to do? Well, you want to get in that wheel and you want to run as hard as you can. All right? But you know that when life's really hard and you run really hard, you don't go anywhere most of the time. And a fast is like, no, I'm, I'm going to fast from being kind of in control and trying to grab rest control back and I'm going to pray. And Abraham had one heck of a fast in the Old Testament, didn't he? God said to him, in the law, the Old Testament law was uh, the firstborn male belongs to God and God said, I want you to give him back. I want you to offer him to me as a uh, sacrifice. Now, uh, Isaac was good and he was prepared to do that fast. He expected God was going to raise Isaac from the dead. I've spoken about a media fast. But I think f- fasting food is, um, is particularly unique. Uh, now, obviously, if you're here today and you've got a medical condition or you're pregnant, I mean, I'm just leaving it to you to deal with all that sort of stuff. All right? If, you got, if fasting's just, you know, if you're going to pass out and land on the floor and someone's going to have to dial triple O because you've got some blood sugar thing... this is not a legalistic thing it's like you've got to go and do this Um, just use your judgment like if you're a diabetic and all that sort of stuff like be smart about it right find something that you really love that you keep going back to all the time fast that Um, look I'll be honest with you I mostly find that fasting is embarrassing because what I find is I just end up and maybe this is just me I end up thinking about food all the time (laughs) And you know what, I actually, it's embarrassing because I actually realise that I 
in those moments, I actually love food way more than I love Jesus. Now, you might have heard people talk about fasting before, about it being, it kind of sounds like leverage, like if I fast, God has to do it. It's like an arm twist. It's not an arm twist. That's not how it is. You do need to be in, in the scriptures. Now, some people would ask uh, things like, uh, well, um, do you need to be in prayer all day? Is that what you're supposed to do? Or well, you know what I do? This is all I do in this. Yeah, other people have got good ways of doing it, so I'm not saying you have to do it my way, but I tend to find that if I pray every time I think about food, I'm praying a lot <laughs> when I'm fasting. That's just it. Now, I've fasted on days where I've gone to work and I go and uh, I'm just thinking about food. So every time that I'm thinking about food, because some people go, oh, should you dedicate the time that you would spend eating lunch to, to prayer? Yeah, yeah. I, there's no rules about it. Yeah, you can do that. I tend to find I was praying all the time. Now, the weird, I'll, I'll just tell you this about fasting. The times that I've prayed, and you might go, oh, idiot, you should have connected them, but I didn't connect them. I remember the times that I've prayed, what tends to happen is a couple of weeks down the track, I'm just going, man, I'm just going really, really well with God at the moment. I've got no idea why this has happened. You know, because my fasting's just kind of left my mind. But somehow in there, I just clicked in and keyed into something that was going on. I saw myself better, saw Christ better, and, uh, and reached out for him. You see, the experience of fasting is, uh, for me anyway, that I go looking for food. I think about it all the time. I think I'm going to die. Will I find spiritual communion with God sweet enough to compensate me for not having any food? Will I hope in his promises deep enough, not just to cope, but to flourish and rejoice and be really happy in him? Next week is uh, Stakeholders Morning, and you know what I'm going to invite you to do? I'm going to invite you to do a month of fasting. Now, before you freak out about it, you just go, oh, I'm going to be a sun-dried tomato at the end of that. Um, you won't, all right? So all I'm, I'll give you some more information about it next week, but I'm just going to invite you one day a week to fast breakfast and lunch. There is an Old Testament fast where they fast from dawn to, to dusk. And that's the kind of vibe that I'm thinking of, something just breakfast, breakfast and lunch, uh, and we'll give you a, a really, you know, a real purpose about it. So the, the point of preaching on fasting now is I really want you to have a look at it and I want you to have a think about it and get some kind of conviction about what you think fasting is. So get online and look up a concordance and type in fast and then look them all up. If it's something about a chariot fasting, it's not going without food, it's, it's fast because it's got good horses. You see, a deeper walk with Christ means that you're hungrier for him. You're more homesick for heaven. The more that you want all the fullness of God, the more you want to be done with sin, the more you want the bridegroom, the more you want the church revived and purified with the beauty of Jesus, the more that you want people from the project to be a force in Highfields and Toowoomba, the more you want the surrounding suburbs to be more than 50% Christian, the more you want a church of adventurous radicals, the more you long for the wrong to be made right and the justice and the grace of God to fill the earth like the waters cover the sea.